Judges chapter 4. Guardians of the unruly. We've met three. We've met Otniel, Lion of God of tribe Judah. Judges chapter 3 verse 10 told us the spirit of the Lord came upon him. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 14 says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. So while the spirit of the Lord came upon Othniel, his spirit can strengthen your inner man, your inner woman. We met Ehud. Ehud, whose name means undivided praise, and he sliced up the Moabite king Eglon. So we talked about on Sunday, sliced him up like a runny egg sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> hey, hey, I heard stuff you wouldn't even believe. Craig came up to me on Sunday. I had to name him just so you know people know who said this. And he said, I actually have something else to tell you about eggnog. I like that. <laughs> Called eggnog. He said, yeah, um, he, he would have to be like a, a, a soft, um, uh, an over easy egg, you know, because it's really runny in the end. <laughs> I didn't say it. <laughs> yes, I did. You know, and I hope you caught this on Sunday that the reason I was so gross and so intent on being disgusting and sickening and putrid in the description that is all there in the scriptures was because we have to understand how sick sin is to God. And even for all of that, we don't quite comprehend the depth of sin, how disgusting and abhorrent it is to God. The little things, things that we, we call or we've convinced ourselves are no big deal. To God, this is eternal stuff. And it's disgusting and putrid. It's like Eglon in a heap on the floor. That's a great picture of it. Judges 3.16 told us that Ehud made himself a sword which had two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his cloak. We pointed out 2 Timothy 2.15, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth, accurately handling that sword. And then we met Shamgar, kind of like a shot in the arm, saying Shamgar the sword's one-sentence bio the very end of chapter three, pointed out that he may not even be Hebrew, at least in name, but indeed, he saved Israel. Judges 3.31, he also saved Israel. With what? With an ox goad. With a simple implement that was in his hand, a farming tool, but it was in his hands. And he was committed to the Lord in whatever he did and however it happened, I heard someone say, uh, it tells us that he killed 600 Philistines. Now, we don't know if that was one Philistine a day for 600 days, <laughs> you know, or if that was pockets of Philistines that ultimately added up to 600. My, my guess is it was, it was 600 in battle, and it was probably all at once. It could be any of those because the Spirit of the Lord was the power by which Shamgar functioned, but he used what was in his hands. Psalm 90, verse 17 says, let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and confirm for us the work of our hands. Yes, confirm or establish the work of our hands. You know, it's not where we come from 
what our name or our history or our tribe is so much that matters. It's really, it's what we do. It's the work of our hands. And the most simple things in the hands of a follower of Jesus Christ are of great use to him to fight the good fight for the sake of peace. Now, coming out of chapter three and into chapter four, so far we've also seen eight years of subjugation followed by a 40-year peace. Notice the difference between punishment and grace. Eight years versus 40 years of peace and rest in the land. And then 18 years of a heavy oppression followed by 80 years of peace. That will be the longest time of peace across 390 years of the judges, those 80 years. So that's already come and gone, the opportunity to really experience the peace of God and the rest of the land. But the degeneration just keeps coming round and round. Chapter four, verse one, then the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Yabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hatzor, and the commander of his army was, army was Sisera, who lived in Heroshet Hagoim. The sons of Israel cried to the Lord, for he had 900 iron chariots, and he oppressed the sons of Israel severely for 20 years. So now the oppression is two years longer than the last one. Eight years, 18 years. Now it's 20 years. You almost get the feeling like maybe the Lord's getting a little tired of the rebellion giving them a little more of what they keep asking for. And so they get the oppressive Canaanite King Yabin. King Yabin, his name means intelligence. And Yabin held a strategic stronghold in the northern Galilee. Now you may recall, this is where Joshua in Joshua chapter 11 and the sons of Israel, they went up against a five-king coalition in the northern Galilee against iron chariots and cavalry and fighting men up there, and, and they routed them. Not much time has gone by, and now suddenly we have a king rise in the northern Galilee in this place, and this king was powerful. This stronghold was difficult to take. It's about eight to 10 miles north of Lake Kinneret, which is the Sea of Galilee. You may recall, Joshua 11, verse 10, that Joshua turned back at that time and captured Hatzor. That's this city, Hatzor, and he struck it, its king with the sword, for Hatzor formerly was the head of all these kingdoms. Hatzor, which you see there in verse two, this is where King Yabin is reigning in Hatzor, again, eight to 10 miles north of the Sea of Galilee, and Hatzor means castle. Castle. This is the castle city of this king. It was the largest, it was the most fortified city in all of the land. We know this archaeologically. It was the most, one of the most important cities in the Fertile Crescent at that time. And so Yabin was king over Hatsor, this massive archaeological dig. In fact, you can see it today. It's the largest archaeological find in all of Israel. For those of you who have been there, it's larger than Betshan. Betshan's big. We've never taken a group to Hatsor, maybe this time. But Hatsor is a remarkable site, and it was a huge, impenetrable city, a city-state, and there the Canaanite king Yabin dwelled. His, his commander, Sisera, lived nearby in what the Bible names as Heroshet Hagoyim. Heroshet is woodland Hagoyim, Goyim, Goy, the Gentiles. So this is woodland of the Gentiles. Interesting because Galilee would eventually be called Galilee of the Gentiles. 
Galilee Hagoyim. Josephus tells us that this King Yabin had an infantry of 300,000 cavalry, or 300,000 men, sorry, a cavalry of 10,000, 300,000 marching men, cavalry of 10,000, and he had 3,000 chariots at his disposal, though in our story before us, he only has 900 in play, just 900. What did Israel have to go up against such a fortified city, a powerful king, an armed uh, group of people, an ox goad? You know, what, what did Israel have? Uh, uh, some homemade swords strung on their thigh? No, they had the spirit of the living God. Don't ever underestimate what God can do, what he desires to do in and through you. You may seem insignificant. You may seem as nothing. You may feel like you have no implements of warfare. You got nothing to bring, but the spirit of God upon you can do mighty things. And remember, it was Paul who said, it's in my weakness that I'm strong. In fact, that kind of thinking is the weaker you are, the more powerful you can be for God. So get weak and pray for the power of the Spirit to be at work. He can do mighty things that we don't even expect if we will simply trust him for it. Isaiah 54, 16, Behold, I myself have created the smith who blows the fire of coals and brings out a weapon for its work. I have created the destroyer to ruin. No weapon that is formed against you will prosper, and every tongue that accuses you in judgment you will condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication is from me, declares the Lord. So before we ever get to this fourth guardian, the Lord by his spirit has already raised up three supermen. And we see them as supermen. We see them as judges, as guardians, as, as great fighting men because the Lord was with them. Otherwise, they would be nobody lost to history. But the spirit of the Lord upon Otniel and Ehud and Shamgar, suddenly these men are named and they're before us. And since he's done it with the first three, for this King Yabin and his, and his fighting commander Sisera, hey, the Lord will surely do it again. No, not surely, Deborah. Deborah, whose name means honeybee. I like that, honeybee. Who's gonna fight for the Lord? Honeybee. Verse four. Now, Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidot, was judging Israel at that time. Doesn't say that God raised her up, by the way. There's some interesting differences between Deborah and then the three men who preceded her. Some would take these differences and make them chauvinistic. I won't do that. But Deborah was just in place, was, was judging Israel at that time. She wasn't, it wasn't, God raised up Deborah and she took out 800 Philistines with a hairdryer. You know, that wasn't what happened. She was in process. She was judging, enter the fourth guardian, the fourth judge. Now, it's interesting to me, perhaps coincidental, perhaps not, but do you know who the fourth prime minister of the modern state of Israel was? Anyone? You'll know her name when I say it. Golda Meir. The only female prime minister in the modern Middle East to this day was Golda Meir. 
March 17th, 1969, Golda Meir was the only one, and she came up through the ranks. First, she was labor minister, and then she was foreign minister, and then prime minister, and ultimately, they called Golda Meir the Iron Lady of Israel, and she was a tough cookie, chain smoker. <laughs> they all were back in the you know, 60s. How did Deborah gain such respect in ancient Israel? Golda Meir, she kind of worked her way up she was in place, kind of right place at the right time. In fact, I'll remind you of this later. Golda Meir really didn't want to be prime minister, but she felt called. She felt the need to do it, and she was there when it was needed, and no one else was really standing up. That's a lot like Deborah. Deborah. Some things to know about Deborah and how she gained this position of prominence here in the land. Number one note that verse four tells us Deborah is a prophetess. She's a prophetess. She's only the second one we've seen since opening the scriptures in Genesis. A prophetess. That is, Isha Neviah, which literally translates a woman of prophecy. Deborah was a woman of prophecy. Now, the Jewish rabbis will tell you there were seven in Israel, seven prophetesses. They would begin with Sarah, and then they go to Miriam and Deborah and Hannah and Abigail and Huldah and Esther. Those are the seven according to the rabbis. According to the Tanakh, only four are called women of prophecy. Only four are literally called prophets. Now, we could look to Sarah and say, perhaps there was something prophetic there. And being wife of Abraham, the wife of the father of nations, perhaps. But we know only of four, the first being Miriam, the second being Deborah, Miriam's in Exodus 16, Deborah right here. Huldah is the third in 2 Kings 22. And the fourth is Mrs. Isaiah. We don't know her name. Mrs. Isaiah, so Isaiah chapter eight, verse three. But those are the only four. Now there are two false prophetesses also that are mentioned, one mentioned in the Hebrew scriptures, and that is Noadia in Nehemiah chapter six, verse 14. And she had no idea what was going on. No idea. You'll e easily remember that name. And then there was Jezebel, who we don't know all the way until Revelation chapter 2, verse 20. We didn't know that she called herself a prophetess. Jesus says that she did. So Jezebel was that wicked wife of King Ahab, called herself a prophetess, and led the people down some very dark paths. And she herself ended up in worse shape than Eglon. Eglon, at least, was in a heap. Jezebel, when she died, would be so torn up they would not be able to find all the pieces. That's gonna be a fun story. Deborah was a prophetess. By the way, in the New Testament, there are five more prophetesses that are mentioned. Four altogether. Uh, Philip's four virgin daughters who are prophetesses. Acts chapter 21, verse nine. But perhaps my favorite one in the New Testament, Luke chapter two, verse 36, is Anna. Anna, the old woman who is at the temple when Jesus is brought up to be presented at the temple after the time of purification, she's there. And wow, she, she is singing a song and she's there with Zechariah. What a marvelous moment for Jesus, but Anna the prophetess. So, so again, there are five in the New Testament, the four daughters of Philip and then Anna, and there are four in the Hebrew scriptures. So a total of nine women throughout the Bible are referred to as women of prophecy or prophetesses. Deborah, for herself, is also called, note this, the prof, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidot. The wife of Lapidot. 
Now, if you want to waste the time, you can try and find Lapidote in one of the genealogies. You will not find that name because I don't think it is a name. The wife of Lapidote. It could also mean woman of Lapidote. It's Aset Lapidote and it's wife or woman of Lapidote. Well, what does Lapidote mean? It means lightnings or lightning. Woman of lightning. Woman of lightning. Some think it was a nickname for Deborah. And it's possible that it was. That Deborah, a prophetess, and the woman of lightning. That'd be a cool nickname. Some think it's maybe perhaps she was such a a lightning-tongued stateswoman, able to ignite her people with fiery speech that she had the passion of a prophet. And so woman of lightning would, would make sense. Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 9 Jeremiah, the prophet, said, if I, will, if I say I will not remember him or speak anymore in his name, then in my heart it becomes like a burning fire shut up in my bones. I'm weary of holding it in. I cannot endure it. I love that verse. Oh, that every single one of us, when we held back the gospel, would get heartburn and a passionate desire to speak out the truth and to say the word of God in our lives. But that's a prophet. And so perhaps, perhaps Deborah as a judge was also a fiery prophet, had that lightning sharp tongue and and wit and was able to ignite people. But it's also possible that wife of Lapidote refers to her husband, Barak. You ever thought about or realized that Barak might in fact be Deborah's husband? Now, the reason I say that is because Barak in Hebrew, it's not blessing, that's Baruch. Barak means lightning. So she's wife of Lapidot. Lapidot is a word for lightning. Barak is a name that means lightning. And so it's thought, and I lean this way, that Barak, lightning, she is a wife of lightning. And that this is a reference to the fact that Deborah's husband is Barak, whose name means lightning or lightning flash. So he was the original flash, you know? Rabbinical tradition does say that Deborah and Barak were married. And I find it fascinating to think that. And there's all kinds of implication in Judges 4 and 5. Watch for it as we go through. And it actually, I think, really enriches the text if you start to think in terms of the two of these, these two people functioning together in this difficult time for Israel as actually being married It makes a lot of sense, and you kind of hear it in the language of the text. So she's a woman of Lapidote, means lightning. Barak means lightning. She's a wife of Lapidote, wife of Barak. Perhaps the two were married. Number two, Deborah was not only a a prophetess, but she is a prudent judge. Could have called her Judge Debbie. She could have had her own show. She sat there making judgments by the prudent prophetic wisdom of of the Lord. That's why we find her in this place. She didn't, was she raised up? Well, she's judging in Israel. People are coming to her for wisdom. They're coming to her for understanding. Why aren't they going to the priests? That's what they're supposed to do. 48 priestly cities scattered throughout the land. The wisdom was supposed to be there. The leadership was supposed to be there. Why aren't they going to the priesthood? Why don't people today go to the church and to the royal priesthood? instead going off to other places. Deborah is in place as a judge in Israel. I submit to you because others were not doing their job. Because others were not standing up. Because the men of Israel were not leading well. And so the Lord said, all right, you men are gonna stay home and watch football. I'm gonna raise up a woman judge. 
And so Deborah is raised up, and she's already, again, in process. She is prudent. She is a, a wise judge, judging Israel at that time. But interesting, she never calls herself, nor is she ever referred to as a Moshia. Remember that word Moshia? It, it, it's from the word Yasha. It means savior or deliverer. And we see this many times throughout the book of Judges, savior or deliverer, or deliverer of Israel. Every one of the guardians so far were called deliverers. So Otniel and, and, and Ehud and Shamgar, all three are either deliverers or they were involved in the act of deliverance as Shamgar also saved Yasha. He saved Israel. But you get to Deborah, and that word is not used with her, not at all, not a single time. It's used for other guardians, in fact. Not only Otniel, Ehud, and Shamgar, but Gideon, Tola, Samson, they're all referred to as saviors as well, a little less. Of course, the whole group are referred to together back in chapter 2, verse 16. They're all called deliverers, and so you could say, well, then she's lumped in with the whole group of guardians, perhaps, but if so, then why in the Hebrew pastor's list of Israel's faithful deliverers, why does he list Barak, but he does not list Deborah? Why is it the man and not the woman? Because the Bible is so patriarchal. Okay. Barak is named Hebrews 11.32. And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, of David and Samuel, the prophets, and off he goes. Other women are listed in Hebrews 11 in the Hall of Faithful. Why not Deborah? Number three, not only is she a prophetess and a prudent judge, but Deborah, some of you are gonna throw something at me. Please don't, just stay with me. Deborah knows her place. Deborah knows her place. And what I mean by that is as this prudent, prophetic judge of Israel, this is a humble woman. We see this emerge in the story as well. Judges chapter five, verse seven, it says, the peasantry ceased. She's singing a song now. She says, they ceased in Israel until I, Deborah, arose, until I arose, a leader of Israel, a savior of Israel, a judge of Israel, a prophet of Israel. No. She says, until I, Deborah, arose, a mother in Israel. A mother. That is the only self-description Deborah gives of herself. I'm a mother. No, no, Deborah, you're a judge, you're a prophetess, you're a leader. No, no, no. I, I do that, but I'm a mom. That's what I am first. Deborah knows her place. She doesn't call herself Lady Lightning, Judge Judy, Justice Honeybee, or She-Hulk. She just says, I'm a mom in Israel. And so we see this, this prophetess, and I think you could probably say this about all the prophetesses, the legitimate prophetesses in Israel is they're not ambitious, power-grabbing Jezebels. They know their place. She's content to be mom, which, by the way, places her among the holy women of the former times. 1 Peter chapter 3 says, in the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. Now, some of you ladies, and I, you know, I can't read this from your perspective. 
I can imagine, because I've got a little rebellion in my own heart, but I can imagine if I were a woman reading this going, oh, well, that's real, that's fine for you to write, Pete. Sure, a man writes that. But you have to remember that this was by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of the living God. He's writing what he's told to write. He says, they may be one without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. He says, your adornment must not be merely external or outward, braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, or putting on dresses. He doesn't say don't. He doesn't say that's bad. He says that's not the point. He goes on and says, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in the former times, the holy women also, who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. Of course, he goes on. He says, you husbands, in the same way. So guys, you can learn from what I just told the wives. Same thing, respectful, chaste behavior. Same thing, gentle, quiet spirit. A man can attain those and, and, and look to those as well. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way. As with someone weaker, literally as with the feminine one. Since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. Fellow heir. So in all of the, of the battle for equality over decades, there is an equality. And that is fellow heirs with Christ Jesus. Men and women together are fellow heirs. Sisters, this is not patriarchal chauvinism. This is Bible. And if you desire to be holy, it's by a humble attitude. And, and, and Deborah, for her amazing placement in the scriptures and in Israel at this time, she knows her place. She's a, a humble woman. More about that in a minute. Number four, Deborah is also a picture of righteousness. Look at verse five. She used to sit under the palm tree of Deborah. She even had her own name. I don't know if it's because she carved it on the side or what, but people obviously knew where to go to find her. They went to the palm tree of Deborah. And that's where she would set up shop and that's where she would do the judging between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. So she's centrally placed in all of Israel and the sons of Israel came up to her for judgment. Again, not to the priest, but to Deborah. And this is a picture of righteousness. Why? Psalm 92, verse 12. The righteous will flourish like the palm tree. He will grow like a cedar in Lebanon, planted in the house of the Lord. They will flourish in the courts of our God, and they will still yield fruit in old age. I like this. They shall be full of sap and very green, which means it's okay for me to tear up at a Hallmark commercial. Actually, now I'm tearing up at Hallmark for a whole different reason, but let's not go there. To declare that the Lord is upright, he is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. And so the Bible makes this connection, this picture, if you will, of the palm tree as a picture of righteousness. We see Deborah here seated under the palm tree, a prophetess, a prudent judge who knows her place, is a picture of righteousness. That's Deborah. Let's get into her story, verse 6. Now, she sent and summoned Barak, 
the son of Avinoam. Avinoam, by the way, means father's delight. I like that. From Kedesh Naphtali, or the holy place of Naphtali. And she said to him, behold, the Lord, the God of Israel, has commanded, go and march to Mount Tabor and take with you 10,000 men from the sons of Naphtali and from the sons of Zebulun. I will draw out to you Sisera. This is the Lord speaking through Deborah, okay? I will draw out to you Sisera, the commander of Yabin's army, with his chariots and his many troops to the river Kishon, and I will give him into your hand. Who's the deliverer here? Deborah's the prophet. She's not acting as the deliverer. She's calling Barak, but guess what? Barak's not the deliverer either. The Lord is the deliverer as he very clearly says, I will draw out to you, Sisera. I will give him into your hand. This is my work. It was God's work with Otniel. It was God's work with Ehud. God's work with Shamgar. It is now God's work through Deborah and Barak as well. Every one of the judges. And I'm gonna keep emphasizing this. This is the act of God. This is the power of Yahweh who is the savior of Israel and there is no other, just him. Isaiah 54, 17, again, no weapon formed against you will prosper. Every tongue that accuses you in judgment, you will condemn. This is the heritage of who? The servants of the Lord. Their vindication, he says, is from me. So she says, go to Mount Tabor. Mount Tabor is, it's, I love Mount Tabor, honestly, because it's the easiest landmark for me to find in Israel every time we go. First day we head out, we go to Mount Carmel. We go up on Mount Carmel, we look over, Mount, uh, over the valley of Megiddo. We look across, you can see Mount Megiddo. You can see Mount Gilboa. You can see several mountains, and you can see Mount Tabor, and it's the most obvious, easiest one to pick out. For people who go for the second time to Israel, they stand up on Mount Carmel, and I say, where's Mount Tabor? And they go, that's it. <laughs> and I say, well, where's Mount Gilboa? And they're like, I have no idea, but that's Mount Tabor. Why? Because it looks like the hump of a camel. It is this rounded hump that sits, it's 1,300 feet high, and it looks like a big camel hump right there outside, and it, it is the furthest north there in the valley of Megiddo is Mount Tabor. It's an obvious hill, and, and she tells him, Barak, get your guys and go to Mount Tabor. Now, there's actually brilliant strategy because if all you have is foot soldiers and you're going up against 900 chariots, where do you want to fight from? A higher position. Chariots can't get up Mount Tabor. And by the way, while it's a camel hump, it's a steep hump to get up to the top of. And there's a, there's a, a monastery up on the top of it as well. In fact, there are those who think Mount Tabor is the Mount of Transfiguration. I don't think so. It's another topic for another time. I think it's Mount Hermon in the north. But there's a monastery up at the top, and you can get to the top, but it's, if you look at it, you can see that's a very steep mountain. It's not one that you're going to, you're not riding a chariot up the mountain. So Barak and the men are going to go up on Mount Tabor, and they will be able to attack from a higher ground and come down. So the military strategy is brilliant here. Verse 8. Then Barak said to her, if you will go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. Come on, Barak. Come on. Verse nine, she said, I will surely go. There's that surely again. I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the honor shall not be yours on the journey that you are about to take, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hands of a woman 
And then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And by the way, that's a prophecy. Verse 9 is a prophecy. She is functioning in her role as prophet. She is speaking what Barak needs to hear. I, I love Deborah in this interchange because she'll go. I'm gonna go. I'll be, the, I'll be moral support for you. By the way, a good wife is moral support for her husband. He needs it. Wives, you might not realize this. Maybe you do. Most of us as guys, the, the, the strength and, and, and the fight and, and any of the bravery or anything that you might see in us, it's a front. It's a front for what's really going on behind it. We need someone with us. We need someone to stand because <laughs> we're a whole lot wimpier behind the scenes than we like to let on. Not me personally, but the rest of you guys. <laughs> so here's Barack. I, I, I'll go, but you gotta go. I only wanna go if you go. Now, that, a husband would say that to his wife, wouldn't he? So here's another example, I think, of, a, of a, perhaps this married couple, this husband-wife team. He's saying, I'll, I'll go, but Deb, <laughs> come on. Not you, Deb, the other Deb. Come on, you, you gotta go with me. We gotta, let's do this together. And I've had that same feeling. I'm willing to do this if Cheryl goes. And, and it's not even necessarily a wimpy statement. It's just, I need my support. But in so doing, he loses the opportunity to have the honor of taking out Sisera himself. That will go to a woman. And that part of the story is coming. But this guy's name means lightning. Barack, be lightning. He's more like fizzle. Let me say something really seriously to my bros. Too many men in the church are unwilling to strike. Too many men in the church, I don't know, maybe they think they're gonna strike out. And so they're not lights in their marriages. They're not lights in their homes. They're not lights in their churches. And it may simply be a fear factor, but it's a problem in the church today. Another problem is so many Christian women, well, let me say this first. I have talked to so many Christian women who wish their husbands would stand up and lead and lead with godly love and with righteousness, grace, and yes, tenderness, but also with strength. Husbands who think, well, I, you know, I don't want to get my, I don't want to walk all over my wife and be all, you know, authoritarian. You know, she might want you to be a little, a little more so than you are now. She might actually want you to stand up. And I have heard that more times than I can count from sisters in the Lord over the years, I just wish my husband would and finish the sentence. But the problem in the church, the male-female problem is twofold. As long as we're there, let's just stay there. While some men are relinquishing the role of godly authority and leadership, positions that God has called men to, there are also some women who appropriate that role for themselves. And they're arguing for equal positions. And the problem is God did not give us equal positions. He gave us equal value. Don't ever misunderstand that. That a man and a woman are absolutely equal in terms of value before the Lord. But positions, he's given us different positions. That we are most satisfied if we fulfill those different places, those responsibilities. I'm talking about roles. And so men have certain roles that God says, you're gonna function best in these. Women have certain roles. God says, you're gonna function best in these. Sometimes God will call a woman into a role that's normally for a man because something needs to be done and there ain't no man to do it. But we have these different roles. And this is just one man's perhaps archaic opinion. I'm okay with you calling it archaic because this word is old. 
But most of the social ills in our society today are rooted in the battle of the sexes. All the way up to present day, and this is a conflict that is as ancient as the curse itself. I think you know what I mean. Genesis 3.16, to the woman he said, I'll greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children. Yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Hebrew translation, your desire is going to be to want to run the marriage, but he's going to rule over you. My friends, it's a curse. You could call it the curse of contention. The God said, because you sinned, because you fell, because you did what you did, Adam and Eve, and look at what they did. She sinned. Well, she was deceived, the Bible tells us. He just went right along and sinned. He didn't show any godly authority. He was probably right there the whole time, and he didn't stand up. And so the Lord said, all right, Adam didn't stand up, and Eve stepped out first. Eve, you're gonna wanna be in control but I'm putting Adam in control. And ever since then, men are from Mars, women are from Venus, right? And the, and the problems have never stopped. I've said this so many times over the years, that is a curse. That is not the way of the Lord. That is not his design, nor is it his desire. And the answer today, it's not one sex dominating or ruling over the other, nor is it the blurring of lines between gender that we see now. Well, so what's the answer? The answer is Christ. Galatians 3.26, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Male and female, you're all sons of God. Sons as in inheritors. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ. There's the great equalization. There's where value comes to the top and we realize in Jesus, we are all equal. We are all the same. Where Jesus is Lord, none of us need to be. Where Jesus is Lord, none of us need to be. So what do we need to do? We need to joyfully take up the roles that he's given us. Find out what the role is, seek it, and function in that role. And we all do so as servants of the Lord. So he's the Lord. And whatever your position, when God calls, if you don't answer, understand this, he'll still move. So men, if God's calling you up to greater service, to, to, to do something, whether it's, whether it's for the church or in the workplace or at home, God's calling you up and, and you go, ah, not this week. He's still gonna move. He'll just do it with someone else. And you will miss the opportunity of a lifetime. So here's Barack, and he says, I'll go. You know, rather than lightning, it's like Sparky. <laughs> I'll go if you go with me. And she says, all right, I'll go with you, but you're gonna lose the honor. Verse 10. So Barak calls Zebulun and Naphtali together to Kadesh. And 10,000 men went up with him. Deborah also went up with him. They went up what? where? Up Mount Tabor. Now, Heber... This is interesting. Heber the Kenite had separated himself from the Kenites, from the sons of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zeonamim, or Zeonanim, which is near Kadesh. And then they told Sisera that Barak, the son of Avinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor. Verse 11 there is just giving us the information. How did Sisera find out where 
the army of Israel and Barak and all these fighting men. How do you find out where they were? Well, this guy, this guy Heber, the Kenite, told him. Now, Heber, the Kenite, will, will play more effectively, actually his wife will later in the story, but if you go all the way back to Judges chapter 116, it tells us the descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up from the city of Palms, that is, went up from Jericho, with the sons of Judah to the wilderness of Judah, which is in the south of Arad, that's the Negev. So the Kenites who were still hanging out with Israel, those who had stayed with them all the way since Mount Sinai, do you remember uh, Moses' father-in-law? Here he's named Jobab, there he's named Jethro. So Jethro is of the Kenites, and some left at that time, but some stayed with Israel. Some travel with them across 40 years and now come into the land with them, are with them in Jericho, and then when Judah moves down into the southern regions of the Negev, the Kenites go with them and live there with them. This Kenite, however, this Heber, whose name, by the way, means comrade, somewhat fitting, he didn't want to live in the desert. He wanted to live in the great northwest. So he headed up to the Galilee. If I were him, I would have done the same thing. I've been in the Negev, I've been in the Galilee, I love the Galilee. That's where I would want to live as well, up by the Sea of Galilee, and it's beautiful up there. So Heber goes up to live there, and he makes friends there. He's a Kenite, he's not an Israelite, so he is now buddied up with Sisera. He knows him. They, they know each other. And so he goes to Sisera and goes, you know, yeah, yeah, Barak and, and all of his fighting men, there's 10,000 fighting men, and they went to Mount Tabor. If you go circle the mountain, you could take them out. We don't know what his reasoning was for it. We really don't know. Did he, was he playing a double agent here, Heber? Or was he just going, hey, Sisera, I, I, a little insider information we don't know where his loyalties lie. The Bible doesn't tell us. Now, some might say, well, we know where his wife's loyalties lie. No, we don't. But wait for that. So <clears throat> what we do know is that Sisera now has the info he needs to go and be literally lured to Mount Tabor, which is right where God wants him to be. Verse 13, Sisera called together all his chariots, 900 iron chariots, and all the people who were with him from Haroshet Hagoyim to the River Kishon. River Kishon is barely even there. It's a creek bed today. Back then it was a river, but even then, probably not a very big river, not even as big as the Jordan, but you know, it, it was there. So they went to the River Kishon, Deborah said to Barak, Arise, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Behold, the Lord has gone out before you. And so Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. I just want to point something out here. We'll come back to this. But she says, Behold, the Lord has gone out before you. Look, the Lord's gone before you. What does she mean? Something happened. There's something happened by which Deborah says, look, the Lord has gone before you. Keep that in mind. So Barak went down. Verse 15, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army with the edge of the sword before Barak. And Sisera alighted from his chariot and fled away on foot. Now, wait a minute. Why would you do that? You've got a Ferrari, why do you jump out and start running? 
you know, stay in the chariot and ride, man. They can't catch you. If they're on foot and you're in your chariot, just take off, man. Why did he do that? Two possible reasons. Either Sisera is a big sissy, Sisera, or something else is going on here, and you would run by foot too if a deluge of rain caused the Kishon River to overflow and your chariot got mired in the mud of the valley and wouldn't go. And I think that's what happened. Where'd you get the idea that there was rain or a flood? Well, there's a hint when Deborah says, look, the Lord's gone out before you. Let me paint the picture. They're up on Mount Tabor. Down in the valley, they see these thousands of men of Sisera all gathered and all of a sudden, here come the clouds and it starts to pour rain and the horses are getting stuck and the chariots are stuck in the mud and Deborah says, God's got this one. Look, he's gone before you. Look, he's prepared the battle for you. Go fight. And so Barak goes down and he fights. And again, there's more reason behind this, but I think that's exactly what's going on. There's a storm happening. The river's flooding. The chariots are stuck. And remember what it says here. The Lord gave Sisera's army into the hands of Barak. And a storm would also have fed their pagan fears because guess what? Baal was the god of storms. So either Baal is overcome by the God of Israel or Baal's angry with them and is sticking them in the mud or Baal is against them now. Whatever it is, they may feel betrayed or judged, but they're afraid of their own false deity. Everything's working against Sissy, Sisera. Everything is working for Barak because God's hand is upon him. Verse 16, but Barak pursued the chariots and the army as far as Herosheth Hagoyim and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not even one was left. He just wiped him out. Now Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Yale, the wife of Heber, the Kenite. For there was peace between Yabin, king of Hatzor, and the house of Heber the Kenite. Again, they, you know, they played cards. They hung out. They, they were at peace together. Verse 18 tells us, Yale went out to meet Sisera and said to him, turn my master, turn aside, turn aside to me, do not be afraid. And he turned aside to her into the tent and she covered him with a rug. He said to her, please give me a little water to drink. I'm thirsty. Well, yeah, he's been running from the Valley of Megiddo all the way back to, to this, to Hagosheth uh, Hagoyim, can you give me something to drink? She opened a bottle of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. Now, when you're thirsty, do you reach for the milk? Don't you go for like water or juice or, you know, something else that's going to flow? Milk? And especially unrefrigerated milk? <laughs> I mean, what is she giving him here? Hang on to that. He said to her, stand in the doorway of the tent and it shall be if anyone comes and inquires of you and says, is anyone here that you shall say no? Okay, why milk and not water? This is probably like, like is it called kefir? Anyone here drink that stuff? Kefir? Like, like Sutherland? Okay, so kefir, uh, that fermented dairy drink, right? It's kind of like thin yogurt or buttermilk. That's probably what she gave him. This milk, or, or maybe like a thick goat's milk. Here's the thing about this kind of milk. It is loaded with tryptophan. 
Anyone get sleepy on Thanksgiving Day? You know, the turkey, tryptophan and the turkey, that's always the joke about Thanksgiving. Too much turkey, too much tryptophan. Tryptophan is an amino acid that stimulates melatonin and serotonin in your brain. Makes you sleepy. And this is what she, he says, give me water. She gives him milk. Yale wants to make this guy sleepy. So Sisera, now safe, at ease, naturally drugged, drifts off to sleep under this warm blanket, verse 21. But Yale, Heber's wife, took a tent peg and seized a hammer in her hand and went secretly to him and drove the peg into his temple and it went through into the ground for he was sound asleep and exhausted, so he died. I love the book of Judges. (laughs) So awesome. Again, we're, we're another rated R for violent content. A tent peg through his skull, literally straight into the ground. She kills him dead. The guy's got a splitting headache. <laughs> Nailed it. <laughs> Sisera probably should have gone to Harvard instead of Yale. And by the way, I'm going to talk a little bit more about Yale, I think, on Sunday. And I'm probably going to reuse all those jokes because I can. So whatever. As a tent-dwelling woman, I mean, you think about this. She's got a tent peg and a tent peg hammer, and those were big. But this is a tent woman. So she would be used to this. And in fact, in Middle East, in the ancient culture, the women were the ones typically who would set up and tear down the tent. They had the strength to do that. She would be very handy with a tent peg. And with a hammer, not a problem for her. And so she drives it through his head into the ground. Furthermore, there's a suggestion out there among scholars that her reason for killing him wasn't because God told her to, although God is in control of the whole thing. It wasn't because she wanted to save Israel. It wasn't because she was faithful to the Hebrews. I mean, she and her husband Heber were, or at least her husband was friendly with these Canaanites she did it because she was afraid he was going to rape her that's out there as a thought Uh, no man in the Middle East would go into the tent of a woman whose husband is not around unless he had some nefarious intentions and it's been suggested that he's in there he's under the thing and she starts to get worried and she starts to realize she's alone with this guy And he's an army commander. And by the way, army commanders are allowed. They're given that right, that opportunity, if you would. Hey, man, see a woman, take the woman. It's kind of like the scene in in The Three Amigos. You ever seen the movie, Steve Martin? And and so the the little guy, Jefe, is is with El Huapo. And El Huapo's the bad guy. And Jefe says, El Huapo, when you see a village, you take the village. When you see the horses, you take the horses. And when you see the woman, you take the woman. See, that's the idea here of perhaps where Cicero was. <laughs> you all are like, wow, I can't even believe Rick's going off. It's Judges. <laughs> it's this book. But she perhaps is fearing he's going to wake up and I'm in trouble. And she takes him out. However it went down, she's got Cicero pegged. Verse 22. And behold, as Barak pursued Sisera, Yale came out to meet him, and she said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. And as he entered with her, behold, Sisera was lying dead with the tent peg in his temple. Wow. 
So God subdued on that day, Yabin king of Canaan, before the sons of Israel. The hand of the sons of Israel pressed heavier and heavier upon Yabin, king of Canaan, until they had destroyed Yabin, the king of Canaan. So Deborah's prophecy was spot on. Not only about the victory of Israel, but that, back in verse nine, the honor will not be yours, Barak. The honor will not be yours. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hands of a woman. Let me ask you a question tonight. What is the greatest spiritual gift? What's the greatest of all the spiritual gifts? Anyone wanna take a guess? Let me make it easy for you. You won't find it in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. You will find it in 14, but you especially find it in 1 Corinthians 13. The greatest of these is love. I will show you, Paul says, a more excellent way. Love is the greatest spiritual gift. And by the way, brothers and sisters, love is a gift. God gives us the ability to love in a way. He gives us the ability to love with agape, whereas naturally the best we could hope for is to love with Philadelphia. I can give brotherly love. That's a natural thing. I can like those I like and not like those I don't like. But, but to love unconditionally, regardless of how someone treats me or responds to me in return, that is godly love, and that is a spiritual gift. And it is the greatest of all the spiritual gifts. After love... What comes very, very high on the list? Listen, 1 Corinthians 14, verse one, pursue love, Paul says. Yet earnestly desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. In God's economy, prophecy's big. This is up there close to love. This is a big deal among the spiritual gifts that you may prophesy. He says, for one who speaks in a tongue, so even in Corinth at the time, even in the first century, speaking in tongues was considered by some, hey, I can, I can verbally show my giftedness. And they had elevated this to a place higher than I think God intended. And I'm not speaking even against the idea of speaking in tongues or prayer languages. Prophecy is a bigger deal. Prophecy is more significant. Why, Paul? For one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. No one understands. In his spirit, he speaks mysteries. But one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. That's what a prophet does. That's what Deborah does. Deborah speaks to Barak for edification, exhortation, Consolation. Her prophecy is not for Sisera or Yabin or Yael or for Heber. Her prophecy is for Barak, and it is a prophecy that is of edification. God is with you. She is the wife supporting the husband, if in fact they're married. She is the one giving him the moral support. God's going before you. You got this, Barak. Go, fight. Edification, exhortation you're not gonna be the one who gets the honor because, sweetie, you weren't willing to go at the call of the Lord. The honor's gonna go to a woman. By the way, in the Middle East of, the, uh, of that time, 3,500 years ago, that would have been shameful for a man that the woman got the opportunity to kill the enemy, not the man. I'm not saying that's right or wrong. I'm just saying that that culturally would have been embarrassing for Barack that Yale wins the day. 
So she gives edification, Deborah does. She gives exhortation. And by the way, I think every wife has that right. Edify your husband. Exhort your husband. You can exhort him with love and consolation. Give him comfort. So we see this happening with Deborah as she speaks to Barak earlier in the chapter. Now, as the chapter ends, we come to chapter five. We can do this. The song of Deborah and Barak, we move from prose to poetry. We move from story in chapter four to song in chapter five. And the song follows the victory. Psalm 40 verse two says, he brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay, and he set my feet upon a rock, making my footsteps firm. That's kind of like the story that we just read. Especially if the, if the valley is all boggy and wet and miry, he, he lifted me up. And so Psalm 40 verse three says, he put a new song in my mouth, song of praise to our God, many will see and fear and will trust in the Lord. And by the way, part of the reason why we worship is to sing of the victories. Victories we've had, victories we will have. And part of the reason we worship is that others will hear us singing of the victorious God. That if someone were to walk into the fellowship on a Sunday morning, on a Wednesday night, in a group where we're singing together praises to God, they're gonna hear that and perhaps they will fear and will trust in the Lord, as Psalm 40 tells us. So let's look at the song. Verse one, then Deborah and Barak, the son of Avinoam, sang on that day. So Barak sings it with her. The lyrics strongly suggest that Deborah's the writer. She's the one who, who crafts the lyrics, puts the song together. But he's singing too. And I really like that because that's another thing that guys in church and it starts young. Third, fourth, fifth grade, they stop singing. Well, I don't want to be embarrassed from singing, bro. Come on, guys. It was manly, it's godly, it is righteous to sing out. And Barak, this military leader who has just come back from victory, is now singing with his wife in front of everyone. And this song marches gloriously with now Three stanzas and a final tag. Stanza number one, praise for the deeds of the Lord. Praise for the deeds of the Lord. Song begins in verse two. That the leaders led in Israel, that the people volunteered, bless the Lord. Hear, O kings, give ear, O rulers. I, to the Lord, I will sing. I will sing praise to the Lord, the God of Israel. Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the field of Edom, watch this, the earth quaked, the heavens also dripped. That's the first hint that there was a storm right there. Even the clouds dripped water. The mountains quaked at the presence of the Lord. This Sinai, that the presence of the Lord, the God of Israel. Now that's really interesting because this Sinai, what she means by that is Mount Tabor. She calls Mount Tabor our Sinai of the day because she's recalling back God thundering at Sinai and now in this little camelback mountain of victory, God thundered here. The lightning flashed as Barak went down to fight. The rain came down and this Sinai, from this Sinai, God thundered. This is possible? So I'm gonna show a little weakness here because I really think the transfiguration was up in the north at Mount Hermon but if it was on Mount Tabor, it would be very interesting to read this Sinai quaked at the presence of the Lord, the God of Israel. So perhaps something else great did happen 
on Mount Tabor. It's possible. I'm only saying it's possible. I, I don't think so, but, but, but perhaps. This song is considered to be among the finest war poems of the ancient world. I mean, across the board in literature, not just among believers, but people who read the ancient texts and look at the ancient songs that were written of war, hold up Judges 5 as one of the greatest ones. And it begins with this praise for the deeds of the Lord. By the way, what we see there in verse five, you went out from Seir, that's Mount Seir. You marched from the field of Edom. That is the exact path that the returning glorious, victorious Jesus will march against Antichrist. Same path. In fact, listen to this. This is Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 63. If you want to turn there, you can, or just check this out. Isaiah 63, verse one. Who is this who comes from Edom with garments of glowing colors from Basra. We believe that, that, that looks like the first place Jesus actually sets foot back on the earth. Now he will set foot on the Mount of Olives, but he begins in Basra and makes his way up through the Valley of Megiddo and then ultimately ends up in Jerusalem on the Mount of Olives, which will split at that time because of the glorious power of the Lord. But he begins there in Basra, this one who is majestic in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Remember, there's one Savior. Why is your apparel red and your garments like the one who treads in the winepress? And he says, this being Jesus, I have trodden the wine trough alone, and from the peoples there was no man with me. I also trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath, and their life blood is sprinkled on my garments, and I stained all my raiment. You know, here's a difference between how we perceive things like the story of Eglon and the story of, of Sisera. From a human perspective, we go, oh, that's violent. Oh, that's gross. Oh, that's destructing. Um, that, that's horrible. From a godly perspective, this is... This is the stuff of his creation. He can do anything he wants with it. For there to be blood on the raiment of Jesus when he returns, he's Jesus. We would go, man, that's violent. He's Jesus, and he is bringing back deserved judgment at that time. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption has come He's bringing both. I looked and there was no one to help. I was astonished there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought salvation to me and my wrath upheld me. I trod down the peoples in my anger and made them drunk in my wrath and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. I shall make mention, and this is amazing that it follows that picture. I shall make mention of the grace of the Lord, the loving kindness the praises of the Lord, according to all the Lord has granted us and the great goodness toward the house of Israel, which he granted them according to his compassion and according to the abundance of his loving kindness. For he said, surely they are my people, sons who will not deal falsely. So he became their savior. This one who comes from Edom, just as you march from the field of Edom, verse four. And the presence, the mountain quaked, verse five, in the presence of the Lord. Verse six, the praise now continues, the praise for the deeds of the Lord as Deborah and Barak are singing, in the days of Shamgar, son of Anat. And this is the only other reference to Shamgar in the Bible. 
In the days of Yale, the highways were deserted and travelers went by roundabout ways. That is, everybody was afraid to go out unless they were wearing a mask. First day of the lockdown, I'll never forget driving from the church back home, and it was weird. It was a ghost town. There, I didn't see a single other person out. I, I felt like a total rebel. I'm out driving my little Kia. Oh, look at me. It was strange. And people were so fearful, and some still are. That's what was happening in Israel at the time because of Yabin and the Canaanites and the force that they had on the people, that people were afraid. The highways were deserted. Travelers went roundabout. No one was out in the open in the days of Yale. And by the way, in the days of Shamgar, son of Anat. So it's possible we can place Shamgar somewhere in this period of time during the judgment of Deborah. That it wasn't right after Ehud, but maybe it came a little bit after that, but before this scene, Shamgar was out there. Verse seven, the peasantry ceased. They ceased in Israel until I, Deborah, arose, until I arose, verse seven, a mother in Israel. And I think I already mentioned, Golda Meir was a mother and a wife too. And Golda Meir, in fact, for both women, their greatest purpose was in that. It was not in military exploits. It was not in success. It was not even in the saving of their nation. It was in being mom. First Timothy 2.15 is a problem verse for many people. It says, women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. Some would say, oh, great. So when will we be saved by having kids? That's what Paul's saying. What a chauvinist. That's not what he said. It's not what he said. Because single women are saved by faith in the Lord Jesus. And married women are saved by faith in the Lord Jesus. And moms, octomoms, are saved by faith in the Lord Jesus. It is not bearing children that grants you eternal salvation. But I'll tell you what it does grant you and what Paul's talking about. Satisfaction. There is a satisfaction there that comes it is a fulfillment of purpose. Again, not all women. Some will not bear children. Some will have another purpose. Some will be called to something else in life, and God knows that, and I believe the woman will know that as well. But on average, generically, across the board, the satisfaction that God has for a woman is to bear kids. Right, Kelly? Because how long did it take? I mean, it was like seven years that we prayed and prayed and prayed. Until Aaron and Kelly figured they were never going to have kids. Now they got two. Two, you know, little numbskulls. Sorry, Gabe. <laughs> but that's, that's kind of the point. There, there is a satisfaction. That's what Paul is talking about. Not salvation, but satisfaction. Fulfillment of purpose. Besides the fact that a nation is first saved at home. Golda Meir understood that. And so, so did Deborah. Verse 8. New gods were chosen, okay, talking about the pagan choice of Israelites. Then war was in the gates. Not a shield or a spear was seen among 40,000 in Israel. Remember, all they had were ox goads. <laughs> I mean, Israel was low tech. Israel had not yet entered the Iron Age. The Canaanites had. So they were very, they, they, were, they didn't have the ability to fight back except again by the spirit of the Lord. The power of God was their power, which is greater than any iron implements. Verse nine, my heart goes out to the commanders of Israel, the volunteers among the people. Bless the Lord, she says. Bless the Lord. 
You who ride on white donkeys, who sit on carpets, you who, and, and the word rich is thrown in there, take it out. You who sit on carpets, you who travel on the road, sing that the sound of those who divide flocks among the watering places, there they shall recount the righteous deeds of the Lord, the righteous deeds for his peasantry in Israel. And then the people of the Lord went down to the gates. Okay, it's all part of the song. Stanza number two here, which is verses eight through 11. This is the people in the day of God's power. So first stanza, praise for the deeds of the Lord. Second stanza, people in the day of God's power. And note this, you who ride on white donkeys, verse 10, you who sit on carpets, you who travel on the road sing. You know who that describes? That's Jesus. That is a picture, a description of Jesus. Those who rode white donkeys were sages, rabbis, wise counselors. Those who sat on carpets were judges, and governors, and Jesus was both. And by the way, Jesus did both. There was no greater sage, no greater judge who ever rode on a donkey up to Jerusalem like Jesus did. No greater sage or judge who ever sat peacefully on the grassy carpets of the Galilean hills like Jesus, our wonderful counselor, Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, Isaiah 11, verse two. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, of counsel and strength, of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. If you need wise counsel, go to Jesus. He's the one who has it. But this part of the song is really about the people who are being called up to service. You know, they shall recount the righteous deeds. You know, the volunteers, verse nine, among the people, bless the Lord, the volunteers. Deborah is singing of those who came to the battle cry, who came to the call, who responded. Like Psalm 110, verse three says, your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. In holy array from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. So all right, the volunteers who charged in and supported Barak and Deborah and they fought against Sisera and his army and they waylaid the entire army of the Canaanites. But sadly, there are those who are never up for the fight. Verse 12, awake, Deborah, awake, 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 sing a song. Arise, Barak, and take away your captives, O son of Avinoam. Then survivors came down to the nobles. The people of the Lord came down to me as warriors from Ephraim. Those whose root is in Amalek came down. Following you, Benjamin, with your peoples from Machir, that's western Manasseh. Commanders came down. And from Zebulun, those who wield the staff of office. This is funny. Uh, the staff of office is literally the staff of the scribe. So apparently the pen is mightier than the sword. There were a bunch from Zebulun who were scribes, but they came to fight. When the call came to fight, they turned out, they showed up. And the princes, verse 15, of Issachar were with Deborah. As was Issachar, so was Barak. Into the valley they rushed at his heels. These are all great fighters, those who volunteer freely in the day of his power. And yet there are those who sit back. Fearful, faithless, feckless, and fickle. <laughs> they sit back and they leave the fight to others. Verse 15 continues, among the divisions of Reuben, there were great resolves of heart. Good intentions. Why did you sit among the sheepfolds to hear the piping for the flocks? 
Among the divisions of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. In other words, the call went out and the Reubenites went, well, I don't know, should we go to war? I don't know, let's call a council. And they sat around like the Council of Elrond, which went on for like a half an hour in Lord of the Rings. They just talked about it and talked about it and talked about it and they never joined the fight. I've sat in those elder meetings. Not here. I've been in those committees. You talk and you talk and you talk and you talk and you do nothing. You never engage. You never enter the fight. You never open your mouth and pray. You know what? Les knows this, and this is, a, this is absolutely a, a pet peeve of mine, and that is entering into a meeting of leadership, pastors, shepherds, anybody, and spending most of the time on the agenda and very little time praying. Why do we do that? We think we're going to figure it out. You take it to the Lord and let him show you and let him lead. And that's the key. And that's why our meetings, our gatherings, small groups and homes, it needs to be saturated with prayer. Leadership meetings of any kind, saturated with prayer. Let the wisdom and the counsel of Jesus, of the Spirit of the Lord, let that lead us, let that guide us. But you've got Reuben here, and they're just yakking it up while the war's going on, and they never enter the battle. Gilead, verse 17, remained across the Jordan. That's Gad and half Manasseh in the region of Gilead. And why did Dan stay in his ships? You could almost hear the leaders of Dan going, that's my boat. <laughs> Asher sat at the seashore, a bunch of beach bums, and remained by its landing. On the other hand, verse 18, Zebulun was a people who despised their lives even to death and Naphtali also on the high places of the field. So you see the smattering of the tribes of Israel. There were those who showed up and those who fought and they fought well. Others just sat among the sheep. I hope that's never you. I hope you're never one just to sit among the sheep and be content just to do that. And yes, that's a call for volunteerism in our fellowship, but it's much bigger than that. That is a call for living for Jesus wherever you are. Some of you will never serve in this church, but you are called to serve in the workplace. You are called to serve at home. You have a life of service, and I'm convinced of it, and, and sometimes I catch some of you in that service, or I find out about it and go, wow, I didn't even know that's awesome what he's doing, what she's up to, engaged in the fight. Never be content to sit among the sheep and do nothing else. Because that's what Reuben did. They just sat down and talked about it. Never be content to wait for your ship to come in. Go get it, man. Bumming around on the beach, river rats, they're the ones who say, hey, that's not my war. That's not my problem. That's not my battle to fight. That's someone else's. You know what Jesus said? Matthew 24, verse 45. Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Anyone wants to get me a t-shirt for Christmas? I want one that just says, finds so doing. That's it. That'd be intriguing, huh? What does your t-shirt mean? Oh, let me tell you whose master finds him so doing when he comes, engaged actively in the service of the Lord, wherever and whatever the service is, however God calls you. Question is, will Jesus find you fighting or floating when he comes? Verse 19, the kings came and fought and the, then fought the kings of Canaan at Taanach near the waters of Megiddo. They took no plunder and silver. The stars fought from heaven 
From their courses, they fought against Sisera. The stars fought from their courses, from the heavens. That is the rain that we're talking about. The torrent of Kishon swept them away. There's no torrent of Kishon. Like I said, that's a small river. But if you've got a deluge of rain, suddenly now it's overflowing its banks. And like I said, the, the valley of Megiddo becomes a massive bog and they're stuck. I think that's what it's talking about. The ancient torrent, the torrent of Kishon. Oh, my soul, march on with strength. Verse 22. Then the horse's hoofs beat from the dashing, the dashing of his valiant steeds. That is, they're trying to run away. And then verse 23, interesting, says, Curse Moroz, said the angel of the Lord. Ooh, the prophetess hears Jesus. She hears the Malach Yahweh say, curse Moroz, utterly curse its inhabitants because they did not come to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the warriors. What's this? Moroz, we believe, was a village on the, at the base of Mount Tabor. And they were Switzerland. They just stayed out of it. They were not part of the war. They did not engage. They did not get involved. My friends, God has involved us and none will ever be able to deny this when finally he comes. God has involved all of humanity in this, epic, in this epic battle. The question is not whether we were part of the war for the hearts and the souls of humanity. The question is, were we fighting for the Lord? Were we engaged in the battle? Did we come to the aid of his people or will we be standoffish? Having chosen to side with the enemy, by simple lethargy. Bible says in Hebrews chapter four, verse 13, there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. So stanza one, praise for the deeds of the Lord. Stanza two, people in the day of God's power. Finally, stanza three, perspectives of a wife and a mother. First, the perspective of the wife, verse 24, and we're talking about Yael, blessed, most blessed of women is Yael, Wife of Heber the Kenite, most blessed is she of women in the tent. He asked for water. She gave him milk. In a magnificent bowl, she brought him curds. So again, we're talking yogurt, Middle East yogurt. This will put him out. And if that doesn't, verse 26, she reached out her hand for the tent peg. This is a song. Can you imagine singing this? She reached out her hand for the tent peg. And in her right hand, the workman's hammer. And she struck Sisera and smashed his head and shattered and pierced his temple. <laughs> How do you sing this? Between her feet, he bowed, he fell, he lay. Between her feet, he bowed, he fell. And where he bowed, there he fell dead. Verse 27. By the way, the word dead there is literally devastated. Because for a warrior... To be killed by a woman in the ancient world was a fate worse than death. Let me prove that to you. If you skip over a couple of chapters to Judges chapter 9, Judges chapter 9, verse 52. We'll hear this story when we get there later on, not tonight, but uh, after the first of the year, Lord willing. Judges 9, 52 says, So Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it and approached the entrance of the tower to burn it with fire. But a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head, crushing his skull. And then he called quickly to the young man, his armor bearer, and said to him, Draw your sword and kill me so that it will not be said of me, a woman slew him. So the young man pierced him through and he died. 
that's how men felt. And that was the issue. So for Yael to drive this tent peg through Sisera was absolutely shameful for Sisera. But there's another woman in the song. Yael is called out here and is honored here in a very interesting way. But verse 28, we find a mother waiting. Out of the window, she looked and lamented the mother of Sisera. This really puts a a dramatically human element to this. The mother of Sisera through the lattice. Why does his chariot delay in coming? Why do the hoofbeats of his chariots tarry? Her wise princesses would answer her. Indeed, she repeats her words to herself. Are they not finding? Are they not dividing the spoil? That's why he's not back yet. They just wiped out the Israelites and they're just, you know, they're taking their time going through all the treasures. That's what's, that's what's going on. A maiden, two maidens for every warrior. And there's the point of the potential rape. For every warrior, part of the spoil was take a woman. So again, maybe that was part of Yale's thinking is I, I got to take him out before he attacks me. Wow. A maiden, two maidens for every warrior. To Sisera, a spoil of dyed work, a spoil of dyed work embroidered, dyed work of double embroidery on the neck of the spoiler. And it is absolute deep sarcasm in song because Sisera's dead. But mama, she don't know that. Verse 31, thus let all your enemies perish. O Lord, a mother waiting for a son who'd never come home. And the tragic picture is of one forever lost, this Sisera. But there's a tag to the song, a tag that I will call a personal call to all people. Let those who love him be like the rising of the sun in its might. Again, thus let all your enemies perish, O Lord, but let those who love him be like the rising of the sun in its might. Song's over, and the land was undisturbed for 40 years. That means even Reuben in his bloviating committees got 40 years of peace. Even Gad and East Manasseh over the river and Dan in his boats and Asher by the seashore. yeah. They enjoyed 40 years of peace because their brothers were willing to fight for it, even though they didn't. That's the kindness of the Lord leading to repentance. So when we fight the battles of the Lord, we don't look and go, well, how come they're not fighting? Well, why aren't they joining in? We engage and stay focused on Jesus. And if they're blessed by our fighting, praise God, because perhaps in that blessing, in that kindness, they will be led to repentance, which we see here at the end, that everybody gets the kindness of God. But I love this final stanza. Let me read it one more time. Let those who love him be like the rising of the sun in its might. What did Jesus say? You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And brothers and sisters, the greater your love of God, the brighter you will shine for his glory. Pursue loving him, and the rest will take care of itself. Father, we thank you for the story of Deborah and and Barak. Lord, for the song that follows. 
And I just pray, Lord, that we will take away now the things that you have for us to take away and nothing else. Uh, Father, the bad jokes, may they be forgotten. Please, may they be forgotten. And Lord, may the comments and ideas and, and even the different points, if they are irrelevant or unnecessary, may they fall into the waste bin of forgottenness. But Father, we pray that your word would stand in us. And what you had to say to each one of us tonight, because I believe that you speak to us corporately and also individually, what you had to say to each one of us tonight, may we have ears to hear what your spirit has said. And may we be blessed in the hearing. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. 